Usually the better when you've got stuff to moan about. I might actually cry. The quicker we get it done, the quicker we can go home and pretend it didn't happen. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Coming up, we've got all the news and views from Manchester City's week. Get involved with the debate by tweeting at Blue Moon Podcast and check out exclusive interviews on bluemoonpodcast.com. It's your club and this is your show. Well, I don't expect many Manchester City fans will be too pleased with VAR and the Champions League. Last season without it, some poor refereeing decisions cost them at the quarter-final stage. This season and with it, some incredibly precise refereeing decisions cost them at the quarter-final stage. Decisions that probably wouldn't have gone against them this time last year. VAR can't live with it, can't live without it. Either way, it adds up to the same thing. The quadruple dream is over. So, can City fans feel aggrieved at the video technology or should they be pointing the finger closer to home? After all, every single one of Pep Guardiola's eliminations from the competition has seen City concede at least three in one of the legs. The stats look even worse on the bigger picture too. It's just two clean sheets in ten knockout games. Also on today's Blue Moon podcast, we'll be looking at how City can dust themselves down and get back on track for the season so that it doesn't fall apart from this stage on. It spurs again on Saturday, and one City really can't afford to lose. There's a Manchester derby to preview, plus we'll be hearing the second part of our interview with Chris Bird and Howard Hawkins got some time to get some things off his chest. I'm your host David Mooney and with me on the therapy couch for this week we've got two City fans in Paul Atherton Good evening, you okay? Not too bad and Richard Burns Hello there How are you doing? Uh, Alright, I'm hoping this is going to be some catharsis I was going to say, have you picked yourself up off the floor yet? Oh, don't Do we have to talk about it David? We do, I'm sorry, we do He does right. look particularly subdued <laughs> not, not quite as bad as Moons was earlier, though. I think Moons is perked Sullen, up a wasn't it? <laughs> I'll, let, I'll let Mooney ask the questions before I start. It yeah. was it was the fact that I saw you two round the corner. And I, I walked round the corner. I just I, I I could even I knew my face looked grey. You stalked round the corner. You didn't walk round the corner. <laughs> um, Richard, what did you do after the game? Oh God, I um I well I tell you one thing that did cheer me up was um, my nephew came to his first City game yesterday, which is a particular result for the family because his dad is a massive home-and-away match-going United fan. Um, but he's finally conceded that he's sort of lost him to, to the to the City cause. Um, and he absolutely loved it. He went mad at the first goal. He was crying after 11 minutes when we were 2-1 behind. And by the end of the game, once, once he was getting in the car with my sister and we were saying goodbye to him, my mum said... You know, we hope you enjoyed your first game, and don't worry that they lost. And he just looked at us and went, "Well, we didn't lose." Uh, you know what? I like that attitude. God love him. God love yeah, him. Yeah, I like that. And he's quite right. We didn't lose, and the enthusiasm. I tell you, for anybody who has a problem with sort of the the idea of plastic flags presenting a bit of a, a bad atmosphere, you watch the enthusiasm of a six year old kid at his first game waving that flag. I was glad I was wearing glasses because I might have lost an eye, but uh, yeah, he he managed to console me a little bit just by being so happy to have been there. I got a little high five off him as we walked down the steps. Well, at least, at least <laughs> someone went home happy, Paul. Because yeah. I because I punched a coffee table and I'm not and I'm not a violent man. A glass glass one or wood? No, it's wooden. All oh, right, okay. You you okay? I'm all right. Yeah. Is I, the I, coffee table? I, I don't know. Yeah. Um. No inspiring words at the moment. I'm just a bit flat, really. I feel like it's a squandered opportunity. Not gonna have a. I don't think we're gonna get a better draw or a better chance of doing that. And, Spurs aren't really that great. We kind of gave them it. So, yeah, a bit flat, really. I mean, at, at this stage, all right. Clearly, Aguero was offside. I presume we're going to come on to the VAR debate. We are. This is, this is where I'm kind of leading it right now, yeah. Are we starting the We're debate starting now? that now, yeah. <laughs> so, I was in favour of it because you get decisions right. And I'm not I'm not saying um, take it away because City have gone out at all. But I just feel like every single time there's a goal celebrated now, you, you can't really commit to celebrating it because you're going to go oh let's just see what, what VAR say it's true it does you know I like every City fan last night completely lost it when Sterling uh, when Sterling scored that goal because for context it wasn't just one moment that's after Aguero misses the penalty in the first leg it's after going 1-0 behind it's after a week of wondering are we going to overturn this it's after a day of knowing that if we get to the semi-final, we've got our, not easy, but preferred draw if we can get to it. It's after then the swings of being in three minutes, five minutes, whatever it was, right, OK, first leg's now eliminated, we're dead level again. We start essentially start from zero. And, and then five past two away goals. Yeah, so then you're in massive trouble. And then by 25 minutes, you only need one goal to get through again. And with half an hour to go... You're in the lead, then it's taken away from you, and then you get it again. So all that goes into why that 
instantly. I knew that I was celebrating one of the greatest moments in, well, probably the greatest Champions League moment we'd have had to that point, really. Um, and, and a moment that would stay with us forever, bouncing around like an idiot with my dad. And then you hear that it's being reviewed and for a minute you're in a complete state of flux where you're in the semi-final and you're out of the competition at the same time and then and then you're in. It was absolutely awful and I've genuinely, for all the lows that football gives you and, you know, City aren't unique in that, every club has them, it's a stressful thing to do to support a football team. I've never had a high to low so instantaneous like that because it was ripped away. The celebration was ripped away without another ball being kicked. It would have been easier had Spurs gone up the other end and scored again. Would have been easier to take. But it was right. And so for the flip side of taking away the celebration in the stadium, which I don't think it will, because I don't think you can control your reaction to a moment like that. I think you lose it and deal with it after. I don't. It will take a long time for that to become a learned behaviour to not celebrate like you do celebrate a last-minute winner, in my opinion. But the flip side is the Spurs fans, and I'm not here to bang the drum for Spurs fans, but them seeing those replays after the game, knowing that they're out because of an offside goal. And, you know, some people say that's just part of football, whatever. Is it right that that's the, the emotional response, that you let a whole group of fans, a manager who's just had a potentially career-defining moment, it's certainly the biggest goal of his, well, it wasn't even a goal for, for them, but the biggest result of his career so far, getting Spurs to the semi-final. Would it be right to say that because the fans in the stadium want to be able to lose it properly, that we can't have correct decisions? And at, at this point, that goal is the perfect test case for VAR because for somebody like me, who is fully in support of it, even though it hurt a lot last night, and it still hurts now thinking about that moment, I still support VAR because getting that decision right and making sure that the team that progresses gets there on the merit of the decisions being right. You can argue about the rest of it, you know, team selection. You can still have that conversation. You've even got, as I'm sure we'll come on to, you've still got an element of subjectivity with some of the VAR decisions Oh anyway. boy, are we coming on to that. But at least you know what the ref has seen and what he's considered his decision on. And that, to me, is progress. I assume, not for me to argue somebody else's point, but I assume if you're anti-VAR, it will only further nail your colours to the mass because you're only further going to have that opinion that it's ripped the celebration away from supporters and that it kills what football's about. Um, I'm not saying that it doesn't need refining. I think we say that every time we talk about VAR, but it's still in its infancy. It's here to stay. And to me, getting decisions right, like an offside call, that, to me, has to be the right way to go. But... If you ask me honestly what I would have rather happened last night, I'd rather get it wrong and we're talking about sitting, get past Ajax <laughs> and go to Madrid, you know? No, I, th- I think getting it right is important because, I mean, it's worked against us here. However, what happened against Liverpool in the Champions League last year where was it two or three offside goals across both legs where, you know, that wouldn't have happened and Liverpool wouldn't have had the advantage because the teams you don't want to go down against is probably Liverpool of all teams in the world. Maybe Barcelona is a close second. So, yeah, I think getting it right... I, I'm more, it's more the fan reaction thing I'm coming from. I think it's right. The other aspect is, is how long does it take out the game? City had five minutes extra time, probably five and a half of that was played, two minutes of it was wasted on, on um, you know, waiting for VAR decisions. I think that's another matter altogether. I think they need to just have the game finish 90 minutes and put a stop clock on it. Sissoko was like rolling around for five minutes of the first half. What, what the. What the, that last minute offside highlighted to me is is how the offside law has got away from what it was first intended mm. for. Because obviously the first intention of it is to stop people goal hanging. That's that's what it is. Aguero's had no advantage from being in that offside position. The Ericsson has made a terrible pass, but has got away with it because it's flicked a City player. The City player, if no, it's a, if it's no a defender, yeah. if it's a defender, it has to, there has to be, has to be some intent to play the ball. So a deflection off a defender doesn't count, but off an attacker it doesn't matter. It's like if it touches him, that's it. He's played the ball. So so Aguero is, as the letter of the law says, offside. But it just Aguero picked up the ball and had to beat players. <laughs> you see what I mean? It, yeah. it doesn't quite doesn't quite feel quite right. I think there's a couple of areas of uh, the rule book that just need changing. Like you said, like, there's, well, no, there's no deliberate advantage there. It's been it's an Ericsson should be punished for them making that that pass. But he's got away with it because of, it, of so, how it happens. But that's that's. VAR has been implanted, implemented based on the law there is now. I mean, um, so you can't really complain about that. And while we're revolutionising laws, let's talk about handball. Because, um, I mean, 
It's got to be handball, hasn't it? He's, he, he, Lorente's flicked the ball. He, he's gone in off his hip, but he's he's flicked it with his arm. He scored a goal via his arm. I'm I'm a little bit torn on this one. I'll be honest, um, because on the one on the one hand, <laughs> as the goal was, um, on the one hand, <laughs> I didn't even do that on purpose. I promise you. Um, it's probably not staying in. Shot right the, here. That's <laughs> fair. Um, yeah, on the one hand, you can say that the ball has. His arm has made a contribution to the goal, and so that's not meant to happen. Um, but it wasn't intentional. And somebody said it to me. Um, said it to me before. I was back outside the Etihad before we turned to the scene of the crime, get over a trauma and all that. But um, and and so I was back outside it, and somebody said to me there, like, if he had pockets on his shorts, his hand would have been in his pockets. Like it couldn't have been closer to his body. There's no intention. And so I, I, I'm I not angry about this one. I don't have a huge problem with it. UEFA do say they don't want goals scored via the hand. Yeah, but... The law says nothing about it. Exactly. And so the consistency is an issue. You know, if somebody... If in the next game, if you watch a game tomorrow and that gets punished, a very similar incident, then I'd have a problem with it. There is an inconsistency in that um, some of the big incidents we've seen this year, the penalty given against Dr Mendy, the penalty that we got in the first leg through Danny Rose's handball, the penalty that United got against PSG, they were all ones where, to me, the arm wasn't in an but unnatural position. It was part of the movement. Um, there was very little time for the players to react to those because they were coming at them at like bullet speed. Um, and so it was unfair to give any of those as penalties. And yet in this instance... Clearly, Lorente has got a lot longer to adjust his body. Okay, maybe company going for the ball ahead of him um, affects his Blindsides vision. him. Sort but of he has got a lot longer to adjust to the fact that that ball is coming into the box. He's got a lot longer to think consciously about his movement. So And, and he doesn't adjust accordingly. But I can't honestly say it, t- it touching his arm in a way that didn't really affect the movement. I can't pin anything on that. What I did think was unusual, and I was convinced it was going to be overturned, was the fact that the referee went to look at it on the monitor, and rare is the occasion that the referee heeds that advice and then doesn't overturn a decision, because it's like, that's like the word in the ear, isn't it? Like, you want to look at this you again. Should, you should have a look at this. And that's normally, it's, that seems to often be taken as a way of saying, we think you've got this wrong. I don't know if that is how, you know, I'm yeah. sure that's not what the law says about it, but that does seem but, to be how it's applied, and we weren't the beneficiaries of it. He was quite happy with it, wasn't he? I was going to say, Paul, the, the weird thing about it was the referee, quite clearly, as he came away from the monitor, was was you could see him say, I don't see the touch. And yet he wasn't offered the camera angle where it was a clear touch, which seems to maybe suggest that if he had seen the touch, he might have disallowed it. Yeah, well... <clears throat> Rightly or wrongly, I'm not I'm not going to... Some standard referee in that, because it's clearly hit his arm. Um, so I, th- I think he's got to the right decision, but in the wrong way, then, if that's what he said. So, yeah, in, in my view... Um, you know, it wasn't intentional. I didn't really give him an advantage because it was going in off his hip anyway, and he couldn't have done anything else. He's, he's, he'd have to have no arm in order for that not to hit his arm. He couldn't have done anything else. Um, I think the whole handball rule just needs changing because who actually intentionally handballs the ball exactly. other than Maradona? It's it's stupid. Um, I kind of disagree with what, you know. I disagree a bit what Rio Ferdinand's saying, where you know a defender can't do anything. I think it should just be like a bit more subjective, as in have they gained an advantage from that? So if yeah. the players literally dived in and, yeah, their arm's above, but they've, you know, indirectly saved but it out Lorente, the top corner. But Lorente's gained an advantage because he scored. He has, but, but he it would have gone in anyway. Yeah, that's that's what I'm that's, that's where I'm coming from, saying, um, you know, even though it's not deliberate, I don't think that's changed the the outcome of it. Whereas if, if a defender slide, slid in, not deliberately handballed it because he slid in his hands in the air, i.e. Danny Rose, but there's an advantage because the ball's going on target, then I do think there's an advantage there. So I think that the rules should just be changed. I think it's stupid. No one other than Suarez in the World Cup back in the day, when he just caught it on the goal line and saved it, and um, I think there's been one in Newcastle where the guy pretended to be shot. Stephen, Stephen, Stephen Taylor, Taylor. great No moment. one really handballs it deliberately. The rule just needs to be changed. Well, we've got a list of four here. Already. We've got Maradona, Stephen Taylor, Suarez in the World Cup, and Christian Nguyen. So Messi these are, we, we, we've But the fact, a, the fact you remember them one. sums up how redundant <laughs> that rule is, though. The offside law and the handball law bear a lot in common in that, um, and I have to credit this with somebody else's point that I heard, to be fair, that I'm sort of riffing off a little bit here. Um, they they bear 
a bit in common in that in their current iteration, they are, like you said, laws that have come a long way from their intention. And it's like they made one change to it and in doing that, they messed it up. So to try and correct it rather than taking it back to what it was before, and okay, because maybe it needed updating to go the, the way the game's played now, things do change, that's fine. But they made another change and it made things a little bit more convoluted and harder to apply. And then to correct that, they made another change. And it's almost like they're adding just bylaws and, and subsets to the law. And it, it, like I say, there's no, you've put it the best way. It's, it's so far away from the intention of the law that it's so hard to apply now. This latest nonsense about, that again, isn't a law, it's what I suppose you'd call it a steer. This nonsense about silhouettes. I mean, what is that that UEFA have issued? Absolute nonsense. Does it frustrate you that that the referee didn't get that angle behind the goal? City fans have been quite annoyed about that. Yeah, because you'd think. I mean, frustrated more than annoyed. To be fair, you would like to think that in making a decision, the referee should have every angle available to him. And I've said this before: if a referee watches over and over again and comes to a decision, even if you disagree with it where it's subjective, at least with VAR, you know that the referee has made the decision. With all the available information. Yeah, by his understanding of the law, his interpretation with all available information. And at least then it's an honest decision. Not that it was dishonest before, but you know what I mean. mean, It's it's an informed decision. I asked UEFA, I asked UEFA why he didn't get that behind the goal angle and they they sent me a a full this is their full statement it's 13 words long they said all relevant angles were made available to the referee to take his decision which isn't true if he didn't see that one I'm assuming that's true I've no reason to disbelieve you so if if he didn't see that angle that we've all seen since um, then he didn't see all relevant angles it's not possible that he did and then that comes to that's nothing to do with the standard of refereeing that's now to do with the standard of the people in the VAR truck <laughs> you know that's well, who, who's feeding that information or is additional it, layers to rules that's what we're talking about yeah no it, it is or did the person who was feeding that information not have access to that from the video producer do you know I don't know how far <laughs> I don't know how far back that goes <laughs> There's some kind of deep state refusal to show handball decisions. <laughs> Bigger picture than Champions League. Um, is it is it more frustrating because City weren't that bad over two legs, Paul? Yeah, but not that bad's not good enough, is it? I think Pep they, obviously they were the better team. Yeah, but yeah, by a mile. But equally, you can't concede three goals at home to a team that's not really that good. I mean, I know they had clear chances, but it was it was too. You know, bad mistakes by Laporte. Um, you know that that Spurs team's not that not that great. That's what that's what's frustrating. I think we had quite a good draw getting them. I mean, one nil away is not too bad. I think Pet probably did the right thing, but it didn't pay off by resting some of the players. I know he had injuries, but I think he probably did the right thing in the first leg because you can't legislate for conceded free goals against uh, Spurs at home. You say that though, the, like the defending. You say the defending's a problem, but on the hour mark, they were going through. Who? Don't look at me to put him right. Um, this is devil's ad- no devil's advocate. Well, well further devil's <laughs> yeah. advocate. Who who conceded more goals over the tie, City or Tottenham? It was four all on aggregate. You can yeah. you can get away with defensive errors, can't you? Do you know you, you can concede goals in the Champions League and go through. It's not Tottenham have done yeah. it. Tottenham also conceded four goals. That said, again, bigger picture: two clean sheets in ten knockout games. Yeah, that's City. Not, that's not great. Not is great, it? is it? And I mean, in seven of those. City have conceded two or more. I don't have to call it mitigation. Um, but you think back to the first year, I think it's clear now that in the Monaco away game, that City team were not anywhere where they should have been with Pep. Uh, oh, sorry, oh, you know, where, to get through that tie, they were not where they should have been. And if you want to go over old ground, you can ask, well, should Pep have been aware of that? Should he have been more pragmatic? The reality is that Pep was never going to be pragmatic because that's not the manager he is. It's not what we recruited him to do. And if he was more pragmatic in his first season, then we're not where we are now. We don't have 100 points last season. It's just that, to me, is the facts of it. So I allow for that one. It's frustrating. Last year, far less allowable in the defeat to Liverpool, but... That was very obvious mistakes made by Pep that I think he learned from. I think that was clear in how we set up at Tottenham. And I agree with Paul. I still don't look at the uh, the Tottenham away game and think Pep got that seriously wrong. I know it's all ifs, buts and maybes, but if Aguero scores that penalty early on in that, in that game, it is a completely different tie. Putting Spurs behind, um, getting that momentum, 
having the away goal so early changes everything. Now, he didn't, and you've got to react to that. You've got to deal with it. But it was not a team selection issue. Could he have brought De Bruyne and Sané on earlier? Yeah, and he probably should have done. And I think, in hindsight now, he would look back and probably think that himself. We didn't have Bernardo available. So there's loads of things that go into it where I don't think there's loads of disaster on City's end. Yesterday, we came up against, you know, those individual mistakes. How do you train them out of Laporte? He's a fantastic defender. He makes... He fails to control the ball twice properly and we're punished for it by Son, who is an absolutely fantastic striker. So it does build up a pattern, but when you break it down, like within it, the Liverpool one to me is the only one where it's like a huge problem and we appear to have learned from it. The, the, the errors that were there this year were not repeated errors from last year. At least, at, at least they're making entirely new mistakes. That's the but, they, it, but, it, but the mistakes are far more accountable, yeah, aren't they? Yeah. You can point them directly, OK, Laporte made an individual mistake there. That is not an issue of management. It is not a team issue. That is one player who's ruthlessly punished. How many other strikers in the world bury Son second like he did? Do you know what I mean? And, and that's not an excuse. You come up against the opponent you come up against, but I just don't think it's the the disaster only one team can win the Champions League it's a phenomenally hard competition to win when you're at this stage there's only good teams left in it and Porto and then you um, you know you you get what you get and City didn't get Porto but, so for, but for two millimetres we're talking about all the same mistakes yeah. but we're through so it's, it's yeah it's fine margins um, let's talk some positives though Paul because there are some unbelievably after the after the you know 25 minutes we've just done um, Raheem Sterling he, yeah, two goals at Palace, uh, two goals against Spurs. Could have been three had the decision gone gone his way. He is, he's possibly the single most reliable player in City's squad now. Yeah, I mean, um, just the amount of um, good performance. He's, he's kind of like, turned into like one of our best, most reliable players. Like you said, um, yeah, I still don't tr- don't trust him. I don't know why. I oh. think I think he's just unpredictable sometimes. But um, it's he, a bold claim given what he's done this week. Well. He can't control the ball sometimes, and he trips over and he scuffs it, and he's got uh, tappings. But at the same time, his stats and his time often not. Often so. Yeah. He's four goals this week. Sorry, have you have you just on this panel? I thought we were talking about this season, but you appear to have brought in the Paul Atherton from two seasons ago. <laughs> Sterling's obviously brilliant, but so in, terms actual, um, <laughs> in terms of actual, in terms of reliability, and is he going to score? Yeah, he, he is. He is brilliant. It's kind of. I can't, I can't put my faith in him because I think some of it's fluke that what he does. However, his work rate is absolutely unbelievable. The way he's improved, the way he can play left and right, and his timing to get in the run and get those tappings is no one else can do that in the world. So that aspect of his game is absolutely unbelievable. I'm not question that. It's more like the actual his footballing ability, ability if that makes sense. Respectfully, um, I, I literally could not disagree with you more. If I tried, Paul, I think he's. Um, is at a point now where he is genuine, genuine world class. I think the the point where, and you know, you know, it's no secret. I've been a big Raheem Sterling fan, and to be fair, in his first season, I probably defended him at points where I was a little bit blinded by the potential that I saw in him than what he was actually doing on the pitch. I can I can say that. Um, I've always been a big Sterling fan. The point where it dawned on me that he's now world class was the Chelsea home game this season when. Um, Aspilicueta is one of the best defenders in the Premier League and has been for for quite some time now and he could not live with Raheem Sterling that day and you know Chelsea couldn't live with City Sterling was the focal point of it all from the first goal and he was just magnificent I think he makes right decision after right decision now where before you couldn't couldn't bank on that Um, I'd I'd back him every time now, running through on goal. And of course, sometimes he'll pick the wrong pass or he he, he won't find his shot. But Aguero missed an open net against Chelsea. Like Even your most reliable player in the world has a bad moment in front of goal. The thing with Sterling now as well, look at the Palace game. He missed a sitter in that. Then what does he do? He comes back and scores two, one of which was... His first one was an absolutely brilliant finish. And the, the best strikers in the world wouldn't take a chance like that. And, and he puts it away. So you think last year he crumbled after his miss at Burnley um, and he had to be taken off. Even his mentality is there now. So you can rely on him to put bad moments behind him. He's doing it internationally as well. It's not even just for City anymore. And he's doing it again. You know, it's not just the the plodders in the that you get in European qualifying. He's scored two against Spain. 
It's wonderful. Well, go on then, Paul. Let's knock, knock this one down um, because uh, Kevin De Bruyne is back, isn't he? And Kevin, how? Kevin De Bruyne in the last four weeks is Kevin De Bruyne of last year. Like it's absolutely unbelievable. I mean, just driving through midfield, like the pass to Sterling in the um, you know where Larice could have arguably come out for it. But that was absolutely unbelievable. The pace of it. I mean, any one of three people could have scored that goal pretty much. Um, it's just, I just can't believe how he's kind of like completely got fit now and he's literally at peak form of what he was last season out of nowhere at the best probably the key part of the season he's, he's, he's come back and done that so that that's promising because I had a bit of concern although he'd only just come back from injury I had a concern maybe this injury was worse than you thought because he hadn't quite picked his form up but this is really encouraging to have this at the end of the season now and uh, just final question then for the for the entirety of the first part now it's all done and dusted do you feel better? Um. I don't think I will ever quite get over the way that one went because it was so unique in the way that it was ripped away from us when I'd just rather we hadn't scored. I'd rather not have that moment because we know what it feels like to win that game and it was taken away. But it does feel good to have at least spoken about it. Talking's the the best therapy, isn't it? Oh, well, I tried. Um... <laughs> and if not, I might start drinking. So. <laughs> Uh, well, we, we're going to have to go serious for a minute because uh, we've had uh, a listener get in touch who wants to remain anonymous, uh, reporting uh, an incident that happened in the Etihad Stadium. We talked last season about an incident I reported about uh, homophobic abuse in the stadium. Uh, this one uh, comes from uh, a listener, like I say, wants to remain anonymous. After Sun scored his first goal, there were moans and sighs from everywhere around me. One stood out. It was a slur along the lines of effing Asian and then a swear word. Uh, There were a few glances in the direction of where it came from. Then after Sun's second goal, there were again more moans. However, this time the same person shouted a common insult, that's often named at Mm -hmm. at Spurs fans, I think we all know what what that is, uh, before then trailing off into some general swear words. Uh, It was right behind me, I told this person that they needed to stop, which I didn't get any response for. Uh, I then turned around and then they said F off and then there was a racial slur again beginning with the word P. Uh, I, did, I really didn't know what to say. There were no reactions around me or there were a few people shaking their heads and looking in the other direction. I typically do my best to avoid confrontation, but I should have told a steward. I felt that standing up and seeking out a steward would have made it obvious what I was doing. I heard nothing else after this. I know emotions were running high in a crazy game, but I really didn't expect to hear anything like I did, particularly given the exposure of recent racist incidents. I think it's important that we bring this, uh, that, that we say this. We've we've seen a number of racist incidents in in football in, in in well this season. Raheem Sterling's been a big champion against it this season. I'm really uncomfortable with people who are effectively people who are not white having to do all of the groundwork on this. And I'm conscious that we're three white guys sitting in a studio talking about racism. But if this if this is you in the stadium or you hear somebody in the stadium or this or this comes to your mind, just don't. You know, just don't, just don't do it. Don't say anything. Or if, if somebody says something around you, tell them that it's not on. Because the, I think the only way we can address this is if we all kind of gather together and do it. And I know that sounds like hippie nonsense, but I mean, it, it's just discouraging to to get. We, th- this came in through Twitter, through the DMs. It, it just it's really discouraging to get stories like that. It's horrifying to hear. It's coming to light a lot more in football at the moment. Racism has never gone away, right? And we we talk about progress, don't we? We talk about what used to happen in the 70s and the chance that players used to get and things thrown at them. And then the easy line is to talk about progress and the progress that we've made. And whilst that's true, progress is another way of saying we've still got a problem because progress isn't elimination. And until that problem's eradicated, it is a huge problem. Racism is coming back to the fore because it's coming back to the fore in society because, you know, I'm not going to get political, but a lot of the things we see from world leaders and the success that they have of being able to say those things, there are examples in society that show actually there is no recrimination when you think these things. There is no recrimination when you say them. And so you're absolutely right, David. The what needs to happen is people need to call it out. and I It needs to be self-policed. It does. It, that, that's the only way that this can be done because it is it is too big a problem to be tackled. In the first instance, you are not going to throw someone out of a football game and stop them being racist. But what you do do is you make it clear to people that those views aren't acceptable to air and then you get onto education. And those two things have to coexist. You know, there has to be punishment, but the criminal justice system proves that actually having a deterrent isn't 
is enough, enough you need to yeah. you have to enforce that punishment you have to invoke it and then you have to have education until you can do that and until people are bold enough to fight back against it like i say i'm sure we can include all ourselves in that if there's anybody listening to this podcast who can put the hand up and say they've called out every every wrong shout that they've heard at a football match i'd be surprised we have to get better at it it's the only way that we'll that will really deal with it. So do uh, do call it out. Basically, is the is the message there? Right. We're well, moving on. And uh, on last week's show, we heard from former City Chief Operating Officer Chris Bird about his time at Main Road. This week, the ex-board member talks to me about what the mood was like when he arrived in Moss Side in 1998. There was a real distrust around the place. I mean, there, there was. I think. I think they called it the Fifth Element. There, there was. There was this sort of undercurrent of somebody somewhere or a group of people somewhere just had it in for the club. Um, and no matter who was in charge, uh, they would want the club to fail or they'd want to disrupt it. Um, and what we needed to do was 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 get beyond that and start to create the new Man City. And, you know, unfortunately, it took a relegation to the second division to make that happen. I remember, you know, my first job was to be, to manage the press conference for David Bernstein um, when we went down at Stoke, and we uh, we we planned on on two words to make sure that they would be our foundation, and that was stability and unity. We had to bring stability to the club, and we had to bring everybody together um, to unify it. Um, and then we went on a, a huge push of visiting um, supporters clubs every week, and I did it for two years. I was out every week. And the players got involved, the manager got involved, Joe Roy was very supportive, he was fantastic. Um, Colin Bell, you know, Dennis, um, it was just, everybody was really supportive because we were going out and sitting in front of fans and saying, OK, ask us anything and we will tell you everything. And we did. And, and there, was, there was a unique bond created. So when we went to Wembley, when we went to Gillingham, I think that all came together. Because there wasn't anybody in that stadium that was a City fan. There was nothing other than a City fan. You know, I wasn't a director. I was a City fan. David Bernstein wasn't a chairman. He was a City fan. And we were at one. And I, I, I truly believe that, that that's what got us through. The Carrington deal is, is an interesting one because mm. you look at, at, at what the club has now and the yeah, facilities they yeah, have now. Yeah. It, it was kind of like that step up, but from Platte Lane. Well, it was. And, and I remember when we signed Nicholas and Elka, um, I brought Nick over to, over to Carrington and, he, and he, um, he came in, got him a bite to eat. He went in the gym, went in the medical room and he came over to me and says, this is better than Real Madrid. I went, what? He said, this is better than Real Madrid's training ground. He said, the medical facilities you got here is better than Real Madrid. And I turned around to David Burns and went, wow, I, I would not have expected that we'd gone that level. But we did. And, and you know, everybody that came and saw the medical setup that we had, and, and we, we were very lucky. We had two guys, um, um, Rob Harris and Jeff Ross, um, who were exceptional physios and medical guys. And, and that just took us up a, a level. And, um, and players, when they came to sign and they saw what we got, it was, it was, a, it was a big thing for them. We had some nice pitches, you know, the, the whole surroundings wasn't, wasn't plush. But I tell you what, it was, it was miles better than what we had. How did you feel when you left Main Road after that Arsenal game? Um, I, I would say it probably took me over three years to... to to come to terms with 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 the situation because I'd put my heart and soul into the club. You know, that was my club. You know, I was I was born a blue, I am a blue. And to be given the chance to to be on the board of Manchester City when you're a City fan, um, and 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 have the privilege to 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 work with great people, um, legends, fans, uh, you know, proper City fans. Um, was was unbelievable, um, and to have that that sort of, I I never I never went into Man City thinking that this would be a job for life. I thought it'd be five years. I I have a five year plan in my head, um, and I didn't have the opportunity to see out the whole of those five years. That's what hurt me because I wasn't around for a wage. 
I wasn't around to be, I'm here forever and I'll be earning fortunes. It was never that for me. It was, I want to get in, I want to get to the new stadium, I want to have one year in the new stadium, and that's me done. Because it would be time for somebody else then, because I was worn out. Do you still feel the same about the club now as you did before you did the job? No, completely different. I um, and that and that's you know that's upsetting um, because um, there was you know from being six seven year old, um, I never missed anything. You know, I was I was either watching the club on telly when it was on match of the day or sports night or I'm, or, or I'm on the kickbacks with my brother um, so you know City was my life you know it, it was it was just you know I played football when I played football I was Colin Bell or I was Peter Barnes or I was Dennis Stewart and and that was you know as most blues are like that's the way we grew up and then I get to be in the club I mean I, I give you a story um I go back to about 1969, I think it was, 69, 70, and I was I was at a game with my brother, and it was Man City Reserves versus Bury Reserves. And on this particular game, Tony Buck was playing right back. He was coming back from injury. And he kicked the ball, and he, it absolutely went skew with. And it knocked me off the white wall in the kip acts. So I got picked up, and this copper picked me up, and I was, I was absolutely battered with this ball hitting me because he could hit it, Bucky. Um, and anyway, after the game, they came over to me and said, oh, to my brother, bring him round. Bring him up the tunnel. Now, don't forget, this is 1969-70. And I went up the tunnel. And up the tunnel, I'm watching Colin Bell, I think it was Mike Doyle, playing head tennis. And it's like, oh, my God. And then I fast forward... To 1998, 99, and I'm in I'm in that same tunnel as a director of the football club with Colin Bell, who calls who called me Mr. Bird, which I told him you can't ever call me Mr. Bird. You're the legend. I call you Mr. Bell. I mean, you can never call me that. But I went from that to that, and when you've got that in your DNA, you got that in your in your in your in your heart. Um, leaving the club under the circumstances that I left, um, it just rips it out of you. Rips it out of you completely. And and also when I left, I was made very unwelcome. Very unwelcome at the football club. You know, I was, there was stuff put in the press about me. There was stuff said about me to members of staff that, that were friends of mine. Um, and and it was just very very bitter the way the way the club had turned and and you know that was hard to get over. Please give us your backing. Patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. Chris Bird speaking to me there. The full interview will be available on Patreon as well for backers. Patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. And now then uh, we've got to look ahead to uh, to some more City games, uh, starting with uh, Spurs again the, as the latest in the mini series uh, continues. Uh, Richard, how does City pick themselves up from this now? Or do, I mean, the team top writes itself, doesn't it? Well, surely? It's simple, isn't it? We only one goal behind, so if they play for a clean <laughs> sheet and score one, then through to the semi-final. Is that right? Uh, I've got lost that track. Right? I've lost track of these. Of, of, like I say, this mini series. Um, yeah, well, there's there's two ways it it can go. Either they're going to be absolutely on the floor and impossible to lift, and it's going to uh, you know ruin our title bid as well now, which would be a real disaster. Or this is the motivation now. Come back with anger and blitz everybody. Not that it'll be that easy, but um, you know, really go at everybody, get the five wins and take the title. Um, I think the motivation is probably the easiest part of this for Pep because this is a simple, do you want to feel like that again? Are you going to let that ruin your season? Are you, gonna do, are you going to have done all of this this season to just take the League Cup and FA Cup? And You've not got the FA Cup yet. But in the final, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. In terms of motivating them for the league games, yeah. Just to be clear, I'm not taking that for granted <laughs> at all. I still, you know, we all remember Wigan. And meanwhile, potentially Liverpool winning Champions League and the Premier League. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And if if that, it's about turning the negative into the positive now, isn't it? And he made his comments quite rightly a couple of months ago about you. It's unfair to talk about the quadruple because then when we don't do it, it's well, City it's didn't win the, the quadruple, post, yeah. um, you know, and that was a, a, a fair comment. And now it's right, don't let them because 
Nobody's done a domestic treble before. So, okay, is it the quadruple? No. Would I rather have the Champions League than the FA Cup if I had to choose, or the League Cup? Yes. But the reality of the situation is two domestic cups and a a league still... Would still be City's best ever season. Still confirms as the best team in England. It'll be our second ever trophy defence after our first ever trophy defence came at the end of February. Retaining two titles from last season and adding on to it, there is no way that is not a phenomenally successful season. We could do it by getting following up a 100-point season with a 98-point season. Last season, that would have been a new record. So there's a lot to play for. There's a lot to motivate them. And they've got two very difficult games to overcome to do it. So I think the motivation part is, is probably easy. To be fair, Premier League all the way to the FA Cup final now, Paul. More or less pressure because every every game now it's like a, a a cup final. I think there's more pressure, but I feel like you know it's it's a key week coming up with the two games we're going to review. Um, those are the two hardest games that we've got. I'm not saying the rest of them, you know, are easy, easy by, but, yeah. by any stretch, but I feel like you'll know where you sat kind of after those two games. Whether that's kind of you're in it or you're out of it, <laughs> or Liverpool might drop points at some point. You don't, you don't know. So I feel like Liverpool aren't dropping points. They play like Huddersfield, Cardiff, Dog and Duck, and someone else. You yeah, know? that's the thing. Liverpool have just somehow stuck in there. You know, got last minute winners or kind of um, favourable decisions or mistakes at various points that have aided them. But equally, they've just kind of, you know, not gone away. They could have very easily fell off when we went ahead, and they've kind of stuck there. So yeah, it is a key week. But the good thing is that it feels like it is mainly just this week where we really. Well, I was going to say, is it good that it's Spurs and United in in this kind of this next two high pressure games because they can't afford to take the fourth? I against. think so. They, yeah, the, the two think, teams that will punish them. I think so. If we were playing, you know, kind of a sort of mid league or bottom of the league team on Saturday, no one would be up for it. Whereas I feel like there's a little bit of chance of vengeance against Spurs needle. now. Yeah, there's a bit of needle. I think if we can bottle up Richard's, um, you know, pre pre match. Uh, Speech earlier, I think that would uh, <laughs> that would be the uh, anthem for the dressing room. Maybe just play him the podcast then, so we can get it to Pep. Oh, he yeah. already does. I've, I had a word. He already play does. Play my snippet yeah. for Sterling. That'll, that'll get him right going. <laughs> prove him. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to prove that one wrong. We've, yeah. we've done the, the uh, speech for him here. Um, I know I got told off by Leon Mike last week for for bringing up stats and um <laughs> and looking at records, but Guardiola's yet to win a derby double at City. So, are you nervous about that? Not really. Um, I mean, my my nerves for the derby are nerves for the derby. Do you know what I mean? It's like I'm I'm never not nervous for a derby. I'm never confident, completely confident for them. With the exception of going to Old Trafford when David Moyes was manager, in which I was surprised it took 45 seconds to score. But (laughs) um, other than that, I've never, ever been confident for a derby. Why would you be? They're awful occasions. They're impossible to enjoy until it's over. Um, Again, with the exception of David Moyes' tenure. And And 6-1. Yeah, but even that came late. It My, did. I mean, it was we very conce- late. We conceded a goal at 3 0 up against a 10 man United team with 10 minutes to go. And my reaction was to think, crap, how are we going to blow this one? So, you know, it. it- yeah, I'm not. I'm not overly confident. By rights, I know we should win. I don't think anybody would disagree that going onto the pitch, City are the better team. United have lost that Solskjaer bounce. Um, you know, the wheels looking a bit more shaky. I did see somebody say the other day that he's actually only got a provisional. <laughs> I thought it was a great like tweet. Um, but. They're not without the talents, are they? Rashford's a fine player, Martial's a fine player. If if Pogba has one of his better games, then he's he's world class. There's no getting around that. Um, if De Gea remembers how to get his body over a ball, then you're coming up against a good keeper even when you do create chances. Um, but hopefully they'll start Phil Jones and they might be famous last words because <laughs> he's going to score the winner that kills our season. Don't do it, Richard. Don't <laughs> do it. Uh, Paul, it's th- that one's the game in hand. So does that put, a, a, again, extra pressure on City knowing that it's the it's the bloody derby that's the game in hand? I think so, but, um, you know, I think it, you motivate yourself for it. Um, like, like Richard said, I mean, the domestic treble. I think because the quad was on, you kind of like, you know, Anything less than that feels like a disappointment. But c- come on, no, like you can't celebrate things before we've even earned it. And it's unprecedented. Domestic, it's unprecedented for a reason. It's, un- it's unprecedented for a reason. If we get the domestic treble, you know, looking back at um, the dynasty, if when Guardiola goes, you need to have that result. There, Is that if a lot when or if or when? If or when. Um, <laughs> so no, I, I feel that they'll be motivated for it. I'm, I, I feel City going to come out against Spurs, and I think they're going to carry that through to the derby. I mean, it's like you said, if they don't, then it's just going to be flat. Um, across both games but I just feel like they're going to they're going to be motivated they're going to be hurting and I think they will you know you still got the Premier League title it's, it's like um, last year when we thought we'd be hurting after getting knocked out but then when it came to you know lifting the trophy everyone kind of forgot about you know the you know getting knocked out so 
I think it'd be the same thing again. Yeah, spot on. Emotions move quickly in football. Um, just one point that I don't know might make people feel more confident. It's funny how fixtures fall. Last season, after a disastrous week when obviously we uh, had the we threw away the two goal lead against United and didn't win the league that day, and then we went out against Liverpool of uh, the Champions League. What did we go and do in a huge game? We went and beat Spurs at Wembley in a very, very difficult match, in a tight match where we were winning and then they scored a bit of a, a lucky goal and that could have gone against us, head could have dropped, and they didn't. So nobody should doubt this City team's medal. And that doesn't mean they're going to win. We're coming up against two decent teams um, in, in back-to-back games. We could be about to have the worst week we've had in years. You know, we might, we might blow everything in, in the space of a week. But also, if we see them bounce back by, by winning these two games... Last night will be forgotten. When Wednesday night will be long out of the memory banks, and it'll just be one of those things that you look back at and you think, if only it had gone differently. But you know, here we night. are. So yeah, I just think it's worth remembering last season, and Pep's got that to call back on as well. Look what you did. All right, well, some good news for this week. City's 3-1 win at Palace was enough to add some money into the kitty for the charity bet, courtesy of Leon Mike. It means we're now up to £918. Richard, you're responsible for the fact that it's £18 because you had a ridiculous uh, odds on one of your wins. The lowest win of the season? It was, yeah, it was like you won 58 quid. That was what it was. It was. Um, for the, uh, it's all going to the Christie, a cancer hospital in Manchester. Let's try and add some more to that, as each member of the panel has a £10 correct score single with William Hill. Uh, I'll kick us off with uh, Spurs. We've got 3-1 uh, for me, which is 17 to 2 and 85 quid. And then I've gone uh, 3-1 again against United, 10 to 1 and 100 quid. Richard, uh, what are you having? Um, I think Spurs is going to be a much, much tamer affair than the Champions League game was. At least I hope it will be. So I'm going 2-0 City. Uh, 2-0 is 6-1 to one and 60 quid. And against United, a uh, for saying I'm not confident, I'm going for 3-0 win. 11-1 uh, and uh, 110 quid. Paul, what are you having for, uh, for Spurs? Um, I'm going to say 4-1. 4-1 is 14-1, uh, so nice 140 if you're right. Yeah, I feel like we'll, we'll come out of that one. United? 2-1 uh, I think it's going to be painful but I think Love, we'll hang on lovely intense thank you very yeah, much for just, that just for Richard that one 13-2 to two and 65 quid remember you've got to be 18 or over to gamble prices can change and for more on responsible gambling visit begambleaware.org that's time for Howard Hawking he's wondering if football is even worth the hassle this football supporting mark is it supposed to be what is the life of a football supporter supposed to be like imagine not liking football commented richard osmond on twitter last night indeed but there were many days when i truly wish i didn't as i left the ground on wednesday night not quite sure what had just happened not quite sure what i felt i yearned for a quiet night with a pizza and line of duty on the telly not this anything but this Dazed in the tram queue as a man whinged about people pushing in. Then the announcement of delays and a rising tension. That electric atmosphere and Raheem Sterling's curled shot into the net seemed a lifetime ago. That tram trip home gets longer every time we lose. The single trams get busier. Twitter gets harder to read. Football, sport can do this to you. But it rarely does that much to you on one night. Sadness, disappointment, pride and frustration all rolled into one. Questions will be asked about our players and our manager, and I'm not ready to answer them for a while. And VAR did not help on the night. City always seemed to be late to the party. When we needed it last season, it was nowhere to be seen. This season, it knocked us out. Don't be surprised if the away goals rule is shelved soon, but too late for the five previous times it's knocked us out of Europe. And that's what really annoys me about the game this week, just like Monaco two years ago. The opposition were lauded for being better despite not scoring any more goals than City over two legs. And video refereeing, something I've always been in favour of in varying degrees, robbed me of possibly our greatest moment as a supporter since the QPR match. It made me wonder what being a supporter would be like in the future, when half of all goal celebrations are put on hold, until we are permitted to celebrate via a big screen. But anyway, I digress. When your team is gunning for glory on all fronts, the stress is relentless and there is more to lose. The worry is that by going for everything, we end up with very little. The Crystal Palace game three days previous certainly brought back memories. It's been five years since I've been that on edge for a league game. 
and we all know what happened that season. I wasn't confident then, which may surprise you, and I'm not now. City's fixture list makes me think we'll fall one result short. Win the next two, however, and it should be ours. My problem is this, and it always has been. I invest too much in City's fortunes, and the results define my mood. That's not healthy on any level, even if you support the Centurions. Every time City are in a tighter race, I tell myself as a mantra that if we just win this one, then I'll die happy. Just this one. But every time there's a new reason why a win is so, so important. After knocking United off their perch, it seemed vital in 2014 that the history cult be prevented from winning the league again. The added incentive was the desire to see Luis Suarez cry. Mission accomplished. And now we find ourselves in that same situation, except the consequences of them winning seem even worse. And I wanted us to retain the league, to cement the team's place in the pantheon of greats. But next time there'll be another reason. Liverpool again, United even, Pep's legacy, who knows. There's always something. But the last thing we want is a replication of the Scottish League, not that that seems remotely likely. Liverpool have ensured that talk of City's domination of English football was a tad premature. And to quote a cliche, without the lows, the highs would not be so enjoyable. I dread derby days and wish they did not exist. Yet imagine how many unbelievable highs we would have been denied in the last decade if that were the case. But the last few weeks have brought the stress levels back up. Even got a weird rash as a memento. Many fans relish situations like this. City are on for an unprecedented quadruple. And for now are still on for an unprecedented domestic treble. And I'm an absolute wreck much of the time. Others though love every minute and I'd pay good money to find out their secret. When you write and talk about your club too I feel the stakes are raised. I just can't walk away from a bad result and do other things. There's articles to be written, debate to be had, podcasts to record. Not like the old days when football was a release rather than an all-consuming. But deep down we know we wouldn't have it any other way. Because one day this summer I'll be sat at home munching on some scampy fries. Afghanistan versus Bangladesh will be on the telly in the Cricket World Cup and there'll be nothing else of interest to do. I'll be putting off that four-mile trek round Ikea for a coffee table and it will suddenly dawn on me how boring life is without football. The sun is out, there's holidays and alcohol still and camping trips and lots to do and it's still not okay. There's a void, something missing. The highs and the lows that I have no control over, they actually gave structure to my weekly life, rightly or wrongly. We all need football, even if it gives us nights like on Wednesday. We've travelled over land and sea and stood squashed on a thousand trams, watched dross season after season, for the other days and nights when it all goes right as it often does now. To see 154 goals and counting, to see David Silva in the flesh, to reap the rewards on spending every spare penny on events we cannot really control. Despite how the Spurs match turned out, I'll always have the memory of Sterling's shot hitting the back of the net, the elation of Aguero's fourth, the buzz off the red-hot atmosphere, that moment when I thought we'd got through to the semi-finals, deep in injury time. It's why we do it for moments like that. And Richard Osman is right. Life would be pretty boring without this roller coaster ride. Hi, it's Nicky Weaver, and you're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. Howard Hawking there. Ask the panel time now. Get in touch on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. Email us through the website, bluemoonpodcast.com, or search for our brand new Instagram page, Blue Moon Podcast, on there. Uh, first up is Marcus Deering on the emails. He asks, uh, does David Silva need a rest or other concerns about his overall form? Yeah, good Great question. It's the question no one wants to ask, really, because, um, you know, games are just passing him by. I don't think his legs have gone. I feel like it, it might be a little bit of positioning because he seems to be playing that kind of left attacking mid role where he's not got the free role that De Bruyne has or, you know, the sort of upper central midfielder. It surprised me how many games he started, though. Yeah, he's played all the big games, yeah. but he's not really had a pivotal role in a lot of them recently. And it's kind of the unspoken thing where we're not really addressing the form. I don't think it's age, but it is a strange... It is strange seeing his form. Quirk, like isn't it? I mean, he's still probably getting assists and he's still kind of, um, you know, contributing, but it's just because he was so caught at picking the ball up and passing it around and getting us playing, it's just strange to see the sort of dip. Yeah, um, I don't know how much I'd call it a concern because I think it's a, 
a problem that we can deal with. And we've had so much out of him that if, you know, if his light is starting to fade a little bit, then, like, almost fair enough. We've had a decade of being arguably the greatest midfielder that the Premier, Premier League's ever seen. He's certainly in that conversation. Um, but... Yeah, it needs it, it does need to be something that we're not blind to and I'm I'm absolutely sure that Guardiola isn't and, and won't be. Um he's not at his best. There's no doubt about it. Um I you know, I couldn't honestly tell you the reasons for that. We're talking about a man who has been ultra consistent for ten years and where, you know, where a bad performance for him is like a seven out of ten for anybody else and you start talking about wasn't David Silver having an off day today. Um it's a, it's consistent now. It's over at least two months where he's not been on top note. Still has flashes, but you know, the last great moment I remember for him really um, my memory's letting me down in remembering who it was against, but he came on as a substitute and then played a killer ball through that I think Sané squared across and we scored from. Um, it's pretty much any goal City score. That's no, <laughs> it, but he came on really, really late and he was like straight on and it was just a wonderful, wonderful pass. It was absolute classic David Silva. Um, For this but, Palace game where he, he turned a defendant like he's gone the other way, I think, when he cut it back from the byline. Yeah, this moment, the last decisive one I really remember him getting me out of my seat for was that one. It might be my memory failing me. But um, it, it it needs addressing. You can't keep playing him because he's David Silver. But I say that as you know, one of the last people in the world who want to see David Silver out of the team. So Fair play. Um, final question. Carol Thomas on the email asks, uh, Kevin De Bruyne admitting that his preconceptions were wrong about Raheem Sterling was a big thing this week. Which City players have you been wrong about with your first impressions? I'm going to give you some thinking time because I'm going to throw in uh, two, a good one and a bad one. Uh, the good one was Craig Bellamy because I, I had no I, I had no intentions of wanting him at City when it, we, the news broke that, that Mark Hughes was after him. He rocked up. I didn't. I wasn't really feeling it and then his first half season I didn't really kind of get it and then that second season he was fantastic and I there were points where fans were calling for Rubinho to be on the pitch instead of him and I was just thinking I you know no I don't I don't want to see Rubinho in the team I want to see Craig Bellamy down the line so he completely ruled me wrong Uh, the other one was Wilfred Bonny because I was (laughs) I was championing that drum that he'd be a fantastic signing and uh, didn't quite work out did it no um, I think I've said this before on the podcast, my most embarrassing one that I was wrong about, with the caveat that I was 10 and just taken by the fact that I'd learned he was our most expensive signing and that seemed like a big thing. Lee Bradbury, loved him. <laughs> Don't know why. He was dreadful at football. Probably still is. Um, but for so I liked him just purely because he was three million quid and... At that time, I had no concept of whether that was big, small amount, and just knew his City's record signing. It was when I really started going to City, um, and I loved him. Um, what was your first, first impression, though, of him? Was it a good first impression that you had of him? And then, well, I can't remember. I, I, I couldn't. You know, I, I can barely analyse football now, so a ten-year-old me couldn't do it any better. Um, I just liked him. I, I couldn't tell you what I thought of his performances. I think he scored. My first game as a season ticket holder was against Blackpool. Um, and he scored in that game, and that was enough to confirm to me that, yes, he was as good as I thought he was. But it would maybe redefined blind faith, my faith in Bradbury, and I was gutted when we sold him. Um, and to give a flip one, um, and even worse than, than your first impression about Bonnie, um, oh, no, it's not a flip one. Sorry. Because... I want one from bad to good now as well, don't I? Yeah, well, if you've got any. I don't know if you've got any. Gota. Because when Gota wasn't exactly universally loved, was he, in his, his first few months at City? But he he certainly came to be. Uh, the other one that I thought was going to turn out better was Joe. I remember watching one of his early games <laughs> and thinking, he's got a decent first touch, this guy. He plays it off quite intelligently. Everton found a friend of mine when we loaned him. So we loaned him to him the second time. So why have you given us Bambi on ice for a second season? <laughs> Mangala's debut is always uh, one to show. Incredible debut. Um, he looks like dominant player. And we bought him because we thought he was a good footballer and then we quickly learned he wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't a good footballer at all. Um, Philippe Caicedo, remember him? Oh, good. The Sven, the, the Sven wonder class, but only made it under Hughes. Yeah, made his debut he, in the derby, actually. Who did he score his back, his, uh, his back heel against? Did he make his debut in the derby? Yeah, he came off the bench in the um, Munich Memorial derby. I'm sure he did. Absolutely, I'm gonna need to check it out now. But I'm, I'm, I, I, in my head, he did. I'm fairly sure he did. Okay. 
not the most famous debut made that day, to be fair. No, yeah, I was going to say. Thanks. Uh... Speaking of which, Ben Jarney, he's a shout as well. Yeah. Um... But anyway, Caicedo, sorry, I've, I've hijacked you. Caicedo, yeah, he, he was kind of... Um... Bad to good, back to bad again, wasn't it? Because he kind of <laughs> didn't start great, and then he kind of got that form under use, and then he just kind of tailed off and disappeared. Um, Nastasic was a weird one where he looked really good and then disappeared again. That was that was another one. Okay. Kolarov, we thought was great. Turned out he only had one trick. Yeah, but Kolarov, Kolarov's <laughs> swing was was incredible because it was it was like a roller coaster every. Se- he had a good season, bad season, yeah. good season, bad season. If you can think of any others, get in touch at Blue Moon Podcast on Twitter. Drop us an email as well through the website, bluemoonpodcast.com. Who are you wrong about with your uh, your first impressions? Uh, well, if nothing else, we hope that you're all feeling a bit better after this week's podcast and we've put the footballing world to rights. Here's hoping that the season is back on track this time next week, but only two wins will do that, won't they? We'll be back in seven days' time to discuss the talking points from the Spurs and Manchester United games. And if you want some more, we're talking about Carlos Tevez on this week's Patreon bonus show. More details on patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. Special thanks to my two guests, Paul Atherton. Cheers, Moons. And Richard Burns. Thank you very much. I'm David Mooney, and all being well, I'll see you next week. That was the Blue Moon Podcast. Please support the show patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast.